Hello. Welcome to The War Pod, a podcast based at SafeWorld asking international experts about the risks of contemporary conflict and how we address them. I'm Abigail Watson, Conflict and Security Policy Coordinator at Safer World. And I am Delina Gojo, Independent Analyst, Associate Fellow at Egmont Institute in Brussels and PhD candidate at Scuola Normale Superiore. Today we will be speaking to Wayne David, Shadow Minister of State for Middle East and North Africa, Lewis Brooks, Policy and Advocacy Coordinator at Safer World, and Dr. Kate Ferguson co-executive director and co-founder of the human rights NGO Protection Approaches. We will be discussing key takeaways from the integrated review, Labour's own foreign policy review, and implementing better approaches to conflict and atrocity prevention. So the UK's integrated review of security, defence, development and foreign policy has now, after a long time of waiting, just been released. Wayne, I'd like to go to you first and ask, what were your biggest takeaways from the integrated review? I think we've been waiting a long time for this and there was a great deal of anticipation about what the review would actually contain. And the overall impression I got is, first of all, that the review shows the rhetoric around Brexit, which propelled Boris Johnson to power, of course, is not a firm basis for articulating the national interest. Now, it's interesting that the integrated review has rejected the idea of the rhetoric around Brexit, splendid isolation and post-imperial nostalgia, that's been put to one side. And instead, you've got a relatively positive tone being established for the review, which is significant. The other thing I'd say, there are contradictions within the review itself, but also the biggest contradiction, I think, is between what the review actually talks about and what it aspires to and the the practice of the government that we have under Boris Johnson. There are huge contradictions between the the rhetoric of the review and the actions of the government. And I think that mismatch between rhetoric and reality does put a, a big question mark over the whole concept that the government has of the desirability of such an integrated review. Thanks very much. And Lewis and Kate, you also put together excellent responses to the review. It would be great if you could outline the key takeaways. Maybe I will give four of my top takeaways in terms of what I was really pleased to see. First of all, we were really, really pleased that atrocity prevention is now articulated as a strategic priority of UK foreign policy. This is something that Protection Approaches has really long been calling for together with the UK Atrocity Prevention Working Group, but also the Foreign Affairs Select Committee and individual parliamentarians from all parties, really. And it's really important because previously this was something that was either kind of rolled in with the UK's approach to conflict or just missing altogether. The second thing that I was really pleased to see was generally a new approach to conflict being articulated. And I think that this could signal a really important pivot towards a prevention-first way of thinking about these crises, rather than an over-reliance on simply firefighting and a humanitarian-only strategy. And just to say a little bit more, what I mean about this new approach to conflict is that as set out in this integrated review, it now places a greater emphasis in UK policy on marginalisation, grievances and criminal economies as propellants of both conflict and atrocities. And again, this is something that I and many others have been arguing for ages was really critical, but often lacking 
both on the FCO and DFID sides, actually, because neither armed conflict nor genocide are caused by poverty. They stem from human rights deficits and from structural inequalities and from discrimination. And so this new approach potentially could bridge gaps that have for a very long time hampered UK contributions to conflict prevention resolution and approaching modern atrocities. And there's also a commitment to prioritise political approaches to conflict resolution. We don't really know quite what that will mean yet, but that's a really good sign. There's also a commitment to a a whole of society approach to building resilience. And what that seems to suggest is that there is a recognition that threats to democracy, whether that might be climate change, conflict, you know, these big global challenges, that they impact domestic considerations and policies, as well as the international, and therefore require a joined up and consistent policy. Again, this isn't something that is yet reflected in the reality, but it is contained within the substance of the integrated review. Finally, I'm really pleased to see a more general thread throughout that outcomes document of prevention thinking. And so whether that is about pandemics, whether that is about conflict, or whether that's about sort of things like cyber warfare or misinformation, looking about how these issues can be prevented rather than simply to respond to is something I think that could be new and potentially quite exciting. But it really remains to be seen uh, how these welcome commitments on paper will be built out in policy whether within the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office and across other related departments, because already we have seen so many decisions that have been taken. Um, Just one example of of the cuts to overseas development assistance and particularly cuts to conflict and atrocity afflicted states, where it's so far becoming increasingly difficult to see how these strong new promises of a new approach are being backed up by actions. I think from my side, there's a big gap between some of the more positive aspects of that strategic framework in the review and that framework which brings a whole range of new issues that kind of into the fore, into that the realm of strategic objectives, um, which is really positive. But there's some gaps between those and the reality of, of UK policy. So to pick two, and Kate touched on one of them already. So one of them is around that new conflict approach and setting an objective in that framework of reducing the frequency and intensity of conflict. And as Kate said, like taking a new approach uh, to addressing political marginalisation and other drivers of conflict, but then a real disconnect between the UK's approach, which includes those cuts to funding. And to to put some numbers on that, you've got what is effectively a half a billion pound cut to the Conflict Stability and Security Fund, Um, which includes 350 million of the aid budget within that fund, because the fund deals with both aid and non-aid funding, as well as the reported cuts to aid to places like Syria and Yemen, Somalia, South Sudan, Myanmar, all of which have quite protracted crises, which require a UK response. So we know that conflict is a disaster for human suffering. We know that it undermines UK interests, including being a haven for sort of armed groups or criminal groups, as as well as affecting international development and potential trading partners. So this cut to to aid and the UK's conflict prevention mechanisms is really troubling. I think the other area of disconnect is, again, a, a positive piece in that strategic framework around open societies and cooperating with other nation states on the basis of transparency and good governance. 
yet at the same time, the UK has a range of partnerships where it supplies security assistance to increase the coercive capabilities of some quite authoritarian states. So, for example, in 2020 alone, there was over £1.3 billion worth of bombs and missiles transferred to Saudi Arabia, despite the destruction that those types of weapons are already causing in Yemen. Another example would be increasing defence and counter-terror cooperation with regimes like Egypt, including joint military exercises, including increased visits of military and intelligence officials. And yet at the same time, Egypt is using counter-terrorism as, as a justification for detaining human rights advocates and for journalists. And so the dis- there's a disconnect there between our objective of open societies and the practice of what the UK is actually doing. Two other quick issues that were missing from the integrated review, one of which was a, a gender lens. So seeking to understand how different people experience insecurity differently, be that overseas or in the UK itself. And secondly, despite an annex in the integrated review that sets out its approach to consultation, there's no evidence that it actually engaged with organisations overseas, civil society, that are working to address some of those challenges, human rights organisations I've already mentioned, but also peace builders, women's organisations, youth activists, those that are helping to bring sustainable solutions to those kind of challenges. So I think those were two other missing points. One of the things that comes up a lot from from all of you is this idea that there is a gap between rhetoric and reality of implementation. What do you think needs to change to address this gap? I think the success of the new approach to modern atrocities and conflict will really depend on political leadership at the ministerial level and within the civil service. Uh, We'll need to see the development of clear-eyed sub-strategies and the extent to which this understanding of what atrocity prevention means and is, of grievances and of marginalisation, how that can be embedded across Her Majesty's government. We've seen in recent months debates around the Overseas Operations Bill, the Genocide Amendment, UK arms sales, so much of what Lewis just set out. The UK urgently needs a cross-cutting strategy on human rights, atrocity prevention and conflict, and not just within the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, but a, a whole of government strategy in order to address the inconsistencies that simply persist in UK policy. Within the integrated review, there is potentially set out some ways in which this actually can be done. This promise of a new approach to conflict will in part be down to the new conflict centre that is promised. And the integrated review says this new centre will draw on expertise from across government, that it will harness the breadth of conflict and stability capabilities, and it will work with partners to improve preventing, managing and resolving conflict. And this sounds great, but of course, we're a long way off from that right now. And so within that conflict centre, we're going to want to see fully integrated architecture that houses this new atrocity prevention systems and capabilities and gives space for that political leadership and coordinates that work beyond the conflict core and the conflict centre and across government. We're going to need this new approach to both conflict and atrocities to be joined up with the already related 
sometimes overlapping but often disconnected agendas like women, peace and security, protection of civilians, human rights, peace building, peacekeeping, counterterrorism, organised crime and so on. And then related to this, is, as Lewis hinted, is the creation of an open societies directorate. And this will also sit within the FCDO and should be, must be, an additional forum where this new commitment to address grievances, marginalisation, atrocities should be embedded. Because unfortunately, I think that if this new emphasis on drivers of modern violence and of atrocities does not sit across both the conflict centre and open societies, the FCDO will simply risk replicating those cracks that existed between both DFID and FCO, and between which the implementation of atrocity prevention and most human rights work very, very often fell. Very quickly, there's a third component where there is a potential for promise here, which is the promise in the integrated review to set out a cross-government situation centre within cabinet office intended to anticipate and respond to crises. Now, at the moment, the government doesn't really have any early warning mechanism, not just for conflict, but for all sorts of crises. Its horizon scanning tools are much longer term than that. And so there is an opportunity within the Situation Centre to really establish this much needed early warning system capable of monitoring and analysing threats to both national and global security and integrating those processes with this sort of hints of a prevention first approach to policy. But all of that takes really bold thinking. It takes clear vision. It takes political leadership and it takes substantial changes in both staffing and structure. And whether that is what will be followed through, of course, you know, really remains to be seen. What do you make of this, Wayne? Do you agree? By and large, I think Kate has made a a number of uh, very, very good points. I would just take a step back momentarily to look at the genesis of this whole review, because at the very time the government was talking the talk about the importance of this integrated review and it beginning to undertake its work, we we saw two government decisions of quite staggering importance. The first was to take the Department for Development and to merge it and to downgrade it effectively into the the Foreign Commonwealth Office. The other decision was with regard to the armed forces, to actually introduce changes to the armed forces, which are quite fundamental, and are bringing about a reorientation of Britain's defence capability, with a reduction of the army in in particular, and an emphasis on uh, new innovative means of of defence. Now, those two developments were taking place, in a sense, before the integrated review. So it is very much of putting the, the, the cart before the horse. And that underlines how it's very, very easy for the government to talk a good talk in terms of the integrated review and the things which need to be done in government to have an holistic approach to a whole range of different problems. But the reality is that even as the integrated review was being thought about and written, the nature of government was still continuing despite that. And that is the, the big difficulty which I think we face now and in the future. We'll still have the departmentalization of government taking place with often quite separate and distinct policies in each government department. Yet you've got an integrated review, which is supposed to pull everything together. And my big concern is 
validly placed on the shelf, gathering dust, and forgotten about. So the, the huge challenge for the government, really, despite the differences we might have about different policies, is a conceptual problem of how do you translate that strategic approach which integrated review represents and is welcome in principle with the realities and the day-to-day nature of government as it exists. And that is the, the huge problem which Boris Johnson will face. If you look at the issue of arms control, for example, the government says in the integrated review that Britain needs to take a leading role in multilateral nuclear disarmament, for example. But the report then goes on to say that there should be an increase in the number of nuclear warheads which Britain possesses. No justification or explanation for that is given. It is simply there as an desirable objective. And yet there's a clear contradiction, and most commentators internationally and right across the political spectrum would agree that there's a, a huge contradiction here between saying that you want to take a lead internationally in reducing nuclear weapons, but then at the same time taking measures which actually undermine that process. So there's an internal contradiction in the review, uh, but also if you look at the, the whole issue of international law, which is quite fundamental. The report does consistently in this case argue for a strong adherence to international law and Britain being seen as the champion of international law. But the reality is that the government is increasingly prepared to play fast and loose with international law. We saw it as far as Brexit is concerned. We've seen it as far as the Chagos Islands is concerned. When the government, Boris Johnson in particular, issued a statement saying quite clearly that the International Court of Justice was wrong in its decision to conduct an investigation into alleged human rights abuses in the West Bank by Israel and attempt to undermine, not just question, but actually undermine the independence of a court by having this very crude political intervention. So that's just two examples, really, of how the government, despite having just published the integrated review, is still enmeshed in internal contradictions in review itself and the contradiction between what they're doing in practice and what the review says the government ought to be doing. I would agree with a lot of what Wayne and Kate has said. I think for me, you know, the next step for the review is is around implementation and to see how that's done. So I think one of the key things is pulling together those different threads of the strategic framework and ensuring that they are coherent in the the different strategies that the government will bring together for specific regions or for engaging in different countries and ensure that they're reconciled. And I think, you know, I've talked a a bit about arms sales to Saudi Arabia already as one area where clearly there needs to be a reconciliation. And that means ending arms sales that are at risk of being used in the war in Yemen. Look, there are going to be some unavoidable tensions, and it may be that the UK requires some relationship with a country like Saudi Arabia, for example, on issues like intelligence sharing. But then the UK needs to set out quite clearly how it's going to ensure that any of those types of activities don't undermine other parts of its strategic framework, particularly conflict prevention, particularly support to open societies. I think another key issue is about setting out what the government's new approach to conflict is in in a bit more detail. How does it bring the different diplomatic development 
and defense tools together and make them work together and again not contradict each other that's quite crucial for also the issue of departmentalization that, that Wayne touched on the UK needs to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater on this and, and it doesn't necessarily need to start from scratch because you've had a, a range of strategies on on issues of stability and conflict in the past the most recent of which would be the building stability framework from DFID, which uh, had quite a good framework for engaging UK aid in, in conflict of affected countries in order to make a contribution to stability. And so I think any new conflict prevention strategy can probably start with that as a basis, but also needs to update with new thinking from the integrated review and the new departmental setup that Wayne alluded to with the, the merger of DFID and the Foreign Office. And then finally, I think it needs to rebalance the tools in its toolkit. And I think, again, I, I come back to this issue of cuts. They, they clearly need to be reversed. And that's clearly something that not only have NGOs called for, but politicians across opposition parties and a number of Conservative MPs as well, including the chair of the Defence Committee who was on your podcast last month. So I think that's absolutely key. You can then have a conversation about how to spend aid more effectively. And I think, you know, we would ask questions like how much are you spending on peace building? Or if you're spending humanitarian and development aid in a conflict affected country, how are you ensuring that that intervention is sensitive to the conflict dynamics around you and is supporting gender equality as well? So I think those are some of the key questions in terms of implementation that sort of the next stage of the integrated review process over the last year when this review was ongoing and you know i will admit that there was also a global pandemic going on that the government was having to deal with so that wasn't easy but review process was used as an excuse or as a reason to pause a lot of the civil society engagement and other than a quite limited short window to feed into the integrated review from civil society over the summer, there really wasn't much of a consultation process. Now, whether that was or was not the right thing to do, I'm sure civil society and government will disagree, but that's fine. We often do. Now that the integrated review is out and all of the things that we're talking about today and, and many other things need to be shaken out and built out, I really do think it is time that civil society organisations and we're talking about conflict today, so networks that work on protection of civilians, on atrocity prevention, on conflict prevention, that have vast, vast expertise and insights that could be of benefit as many of these contradictions and these practicalities are going to be worked out must play a part in that conversation. It's been unfortunate that it hasn't happened until now, but surely now we have a kind of framework that we can engage with collaboratively, even if sometimes that is a critical friends, I think surely is now crucial. It's important, and I say this as, a, as an opposition spokesman, to recognise that there are positive things involved in this process, but it also negative things which should have been done better. And one of those is indeed engagement and the, the participation of, of a whole raft of different civil organisations and academics as well, and people who've got particular areas of expertise which can be helpful. But attempt to, to bring people together and have a proper integrated conversation then was, was missed. And it's something which we, we must note. And something that was also important, I think, especially as the document talks about global Britain, there hasn't been any real attempt to 
ascertain what the views of our allies and like-minded governments throughout the world are on this. And I say one of the, the key themes has got to be how does Britain work with other countries and other nations throughout the world, yet in order to do that effectively, we need to have some sort of idea of what was other countries believe in and what their priorities are as well, and make sure there's an international integration as well as simply an articulation of national interest. Yeah, I think they're all really good points. And I would also just add to to your point, Wayne, who within the countries are we speaking to? There's a nice section at the end of the integrated review where it says an impressive number of people spoken to during the process of the integrated review. But I would like to know who those people are and how many of them are, for instance, from conflict affected countries and contexts who, like you've already noted, have an important role to play in finding sustainable solutions to instability all over the world. And I also think that the concerns and recommendations raised so far will have an important part to play in another review that's going on at the moment as well. Wayne, Labour is currently undertaking a fundamental and cross-team review of all aspects of its approach to international affairs. Can you tell us a bit about it and the sorts of areas it will cover? You know, we genuinely want to have a real discussion and debate and dialogue of a whole raft of, of individuals and organisations in Britain and across the, the globe. And we think that process in, in itself is important because Hopefully, it sends out a, a clear message of how we want to work with people to help achieve what are hopefully common objectives across the world. That may sound a very, very grand ambition, but there's nothing wrong with that. Let's be optimistic and let's be expansive in how we express our vision. How we're going about it is important in itself, uh, but it's also important internally too, because the Labour Party traditionally, certainly in opposition, has... Uh, in terms of its own structures, in terms of its own debates, reflected what is happening inside government. So we've we've had a lot of uh, strong demarcation between different shadow teams, whether it's defence team or foreign affairs team or development team or whatever it is. And what we are seeking to do is to bring members of the front bench together and talk about issues which are common to their their portfolios. And that in itself is a, a useful thing to do as well. And, uh, you know, that, that's something which is very important to us. Equally important, however, is that we don't see policy development simply in terms of an event which happens at the end of a process in which we oppose the government as an opposition. And then just a few weeks before the election, we have some policies, stitch them all together, publish a manifesto and say, that's what we'll do in government. We want to get away from that. First of all, this review which we're conducting wants to establish, hopefully through a period of consensual discussion, a sense of consensual conclusions in terms of what principles we want to base our future policies on. So once we have the, the established those principles, then we want to move into the situation of developing coherent policies. And then finally, we'll distill those into the manifesto on which will affect the general election. So I think all of that is very, very important, and that's why we're not rushing it. We're taking a number of, of months, because to be realistic, the, the general election is not around the corner. So we are engaging in that process. The final point I'd make is that 
we do think it's very, very important to ensure that when we are conducting this process, we are as open and transparent as, as we possibly can. I mean, we, we think it's a contradiction in terms of us thinking we can pull rabbits out of a hat and say, well, here are our policies. Aren't you surprised at that? We want our policies to be, to be generated almost by natural discussion. And people need to know the direction of travel. So we're establishing the direction of travel before we actually come to our end point. So people are well aware of what the Labour Party is, what it stands for, and hopefully what they can expect when we are a party of government. So then what would you expect to achieve and how does this change hope to fill in some of the gaps already identified in the integrated review, Wayne? There are areas which need to do, to be elaborated upon and discussed more widely. And I would just give two instances where I think there's scope for a much more detailed and in-depth discussion. The first is with regard to what our future relationship with Europe is going to be. I think everybody, certainly in the Labour Party, recognises that Brexit has happened, the issue of whether or not Britain can or should rejoin the European issues is irrelevant. Britain is outside of the EU, full stop. But what is extremely important is that we do have some kind of positive relationship with our nearest neighbours. That makes sense in economic terms, obviously, but it also is particularly important in discussing many of the issues which are of common interest and concern to us in Britain as our partners in mainland Europe. And foreign policy is one area which there clearly needs to be you know, some sort of constructive ongoing dialogue with our European partners. But that isn't really touched upon in the integrated review. That is of vitally importance. We need to have a discussion about how that relationship can be mutually beneficial. And if we look at the issue of, of defence, I mean, one of the things which has been happening over the last few years, outside of the formal structures of the European Union, is that there's been a great deal of cooperation between the armed forces of our country and the armed forces of many countries. And that really needs to be an honest an integral part of our ongoing discussion. And that kind of thinking is sadly lacking from the, the integrated review. I, I could cite many other things which are just touched upon and not developed sufficiently. But I'm an area which strikes me as being very noticeably scant is the references to the Middle East. I'm particularly concerned as the, the shadow for minister for the Middle East in North Africa. There's very little reference to not only what is happening in the Middle East, but what may happen there in the future. Because one of the big issues is the declining importance of oil. And many of the Arab states are financed, of course, by oil revenues. That revenue will diminish over the next few years. And the geopolitical influence of that reduction in the importance of oil will have a huge impact upon the Middle East as a whole. And the implications for us and the world are really significant. And we need to have a discussion upon this. And that is something of such huge importance. I really am surprised and disappointed, but it's not really touched upon in the integrated review. So there's just two examples of big issues which we really need to have a good discussion about. And you know, the country needs to move towards an appreciation that these are big issues which Britain needs to have clear positions and strategies on. 
I am glad you mentioned the EU and European member states, especially with regard to defence. I'm sitting in Brussels and we keep talking about this here. So I'm glad you make reference to this. Yeah, thank you very much. I feel like we need a whole new podcast (laughs) to discuss that. We'll have to get you back on. Just before we finish, I'd like to turn to Kate and Lewis. Reflecting on what you've already said on the integrated review, how can Labour's review better reflect the areas that you work on and some of the issues that you laid out in the case of the integrated review? It starts with the process and, and who you talk to. And I think, you know, Labour have already put out a call for uh, evidence submissions. But I think there's a gap the integrated review had, which Labour can do differently. And that, as I said, is about engaging with civil society and organisations overseas and not just thinking of alliances in terms of states and not just thinking of global solutions to things like climate change or rising authoritarianism or conflict in terms of states. And so, you know, I'd point to some brilliant Yemeni think tanks who work on things like dialogue within Yemen. I would point to some of the Indian and Pakistani organisations that we have worked with that address Indo-Pakistan relations. There's some really great examples of people driving these kinds of solutions. I think women's rights organisations are another key area. And I, I mentioned that the gender lens was missing from the integrated review. And I think if you do that, you understand how those different challenges are understood slightly differently in other parts of the world. You understand how people's experience of security is different in other parts of the world. And you see how perhaps some of our partners are seen differently. So, for example, in a country like Mali, where the UK has provided security assistance and training to Malian security forces in the past and now has British troops deployed in the peacekeeping mission. And yet Malian forces are themselves responsible for huge numbers of human rights abuses and by talking to Malian organisations, you get a better understanding of that environment. And I think particularly this is relevant this year as we look at the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and at the start of the war on terror. And I think it opens up a door to understand how the UK's own actions can undermine others' security and can potentially feed more instability. I'd point to the number of casualties, something like half a million casualties in, in Iraq, Afghanistan and Pakistan alone. Half of those were, were civilian casualties. As just one example, I think we could also point to countries like Egypt, where, as I said earlier, the war on terror is used as a, a pretext for detaining human rights advocates. And so I think if you have that rounded assessment drawn from talking to those kinds of people and organisations then your approaches and your narrative on those kinds of challenges, on conflict, on security and global security, will be more holistic. And you can start to de-conflict some of those different objectives, like supporting open societies, like supporting conflict resolution, which both the Integrated Review and previous Strategic Defence and Security Reviews have said are pretty key for UK interests. So I think by starting with that global conversation, you get a greater appreciation of the differences of experience on security and where perhaps the UK might have got things wrong in the past. And then from there, you can start to deconflict some of these inconsistencies that we identified between the integrated review and the UK government's own policies. When we were thinking about this podcast, I was remembering a submission that was made to us from the Labour Party ahead of the 2019 general election, which said that the Labour Party 
believed in the responsibility to prevent all kinds of discrimination and identity-based violence. And that that was a shared commitment that stretched from local communities in the UK to the other side of the world. And to me, this sounds like the foundation stone of a policy or an approach to modern atrocity prevention. But as far as I'm aware, the Labour Party has yet to sort of set out a position on genocide, crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing and war crimes, even though, of course, many individual MPs have supported calls for the UK to articulate a national strategy on atrocities. The Labour Party has not. Um, and this is unlike, for example, the Scottish National Party. Perhaps this inquiry holds the opportunity for the Labour Party to do this. It's great to hear from Wayne that Labour are looking to develop a more integrated and joined up approach to policy. And this is something I think that we're really moving towards, whether that is in civil society, whether that's in parliament, whether that's government and, and also in the Labour Party. And We've seen in recent debates in the House of Commons just the extent to which mass atrocities are a cross-cutting issue, perhaps even more so than armed conflict. A Labour policy on modern atrocities would necessarily need to involve trade policy, asylum and migration policy, climate policy, development and so on. And so this inquiry, from my perspective and the work that, that I and my colleagues do, is a really exciting opportunity to engage with the sort of new trends of modern atrocities and conflict. Because unfortunately, identity-based violence, polarisation, division, mass atrocity crimes, they're becoming more common rather than less. In fact, atrocity crimes have been increasing year on year since 2012. Most refugees have left atrocity-afflicted states. And we know that as the impacts of, of climate change worsen, the threats to democracy gather momentum, we will see a kind of a sharper increase of this kind of violence. And so mass atrocities, and when we're talking about mass atrocities, you know, it's widespread systematic violence against very often civilians, often based on perceptions of identity and violations of international law. They're coming to really define an era of global security or global insecurity. And it's critical that the Labour Party is, is sort of prepared to meet that threat, um, especially if, if Labour is going to win the next election. And so I hope that this review can allow the Labour Party to articulate policy positions on modern atrocities in addition to conflict and conflict prevention, although I'm, I'm sure development of those policy areas would be welcomed also. But just to sort of demonstrate and underline the benefit of the Labour Party having clear positions on modern atrocities, that will assist the Labour Party and its MPs and its members to respond to the numerous specific crises that constituents in particular really care about. So whether that's about supply chains in Xinjiang, forced famine in Tigray, the coup in Myanmar, the bombing of civilians in Yemen, having a, a joined up strategy about those kinds of crimes rather than responding on a case by case basis will help unify and solidify Labour international policy and also identity. I'd also urge Labour to consider what concrete outcomes beyond developing policy, which of course is critical, might come out of the review to ensure that the same criticism that we have been levelling at the government isn't replicated by the Labour Party. So matching from the beginning the new words with tangible actions. And on the issues that we've been talking about today, this might include something like creating a spokesperson on modern atrocities to work across the party and in Parliament 
to ensure that Labour leadership in the face of and towards the prevention of those very gravest international crimes is given its proper and prominent place. But it also might include something more creative, you know, like undertaking training on atrocity prevention to ensure that there are always front bench MPs and advisors who have the knowledge and confidence to really engage critically with issues that are very often seen to be knotty, complex, and potentially even seen as being politically risky issues and help mitigate that. That's something we'll consider very, very carefully indeed. Because, you know, I think one one of the things that the the current Shadow Foreign Affairs team has been doing is concentrating on the issue of atrocities in in so many different parts of the world, which which you've cited. I mean, Stephen Kinnock, for example, you know, has, has very much taken the lead in terms of the persecution of the Uyghurs in, uh, in China, what is happening in Myanmar. And we are very conscious, and I'm particularly conscious of the situation in, in Yemen with regard to uh, the, the atrocities which are being committed there. And I think that what we need to do, you're right, is, is, to, is to pull those issues together so that there's a, there's a common approach to them all and that we might well consider in the future someone with specific responsibility for focusing on those kind of criminal actions in different places in the world. I mean, I would conclude by saying that uh, one of the things which strikes me time and time again is that, you know, often it is said that British people are not particularly interested in foreign issues. But I don't think that's wholly true, because I think that if you focus on issues which people can relate to, then I think the British people, like people throughout the world, are concerned about their fellow humans. And I think what we need to do is to find a way to make sure that inherent goodness of people is given material and political expression. And just to really emphasise your point about public opinion, our polling has always shown that most people in the UK believe that Britain should be helping to prevent these crises from occurring in the first place, and also believe that when they're ongoing, Britain has a responsibility to help protect those people. So I completely agree with you, and I think that that is often either forgotten or ignored. Unfortunately, we do have to end it there. So I just want to say thank you to everyone, and thank you to everyone for listening We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. We will release every new episode on the 20th of each month and you can listen to all previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts by searching for Warpod or following us on Twitter at war underscore pod. Thank you and see you next time.